0: The video, the songs, the mood, the readings, it's all so somber. It all seems to make us feel so bad to see what Jesus had to go through. It almost strikes us as being this tragedy that we're watching unfold, like we want to reach out and stop it, to do something, to make it all go away. But we can't do it. I think anyone who has seen the movie The Passion of the Christ has had that feeling to want to turn away, to walk from the theater, to turn off the images, because it just seems all so dramatic. The rock opera musical Jesus Christ Superstar has played on stages and in movie theaters since 1971. Written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, it depicts the last week of Jesus' life from Palm Sunday to Good Friday. The depiction, however, is based only loosely on what the Bible tells us. In many places, it deviates quite a lot from the story the Bible tells about Jesus' death. For example, in this musical, Jesus is portrayed as not being in control of the events that swirl around him. He is swept away by political and social forces that he can't not only control, but even understand. In a messianic fervor, the crowds on Sunday hail him as a superstar and by Thursday are calling for his death. In Jesus Christ Superstar, the character Jesus is caught up in forces beyond his control and sadly and ultimately he finds himself nailed to a cross. That narrative fits well the genre of theater known as tragedy. Jesus becomes this tragic figure who rises and falls suddenly and everything's happening and spinning out of control and it just all ends so badly, so sadly. But that plot is not the narrative of the Bible. The reason is that the Gospels do not present Jesus as merely a victim of circumstances. They don't present him as one that we should feel bad about. They don't present him as one that we want to reach in and stop the story and give it a different ending. You see, Jesus' suffering and death is purposeful. The gospel accounts tell us that Jesus is really the only one who is in control. The crowds, the priests, the disciples, even the Roman governor Pontius Pilate stumble around in confusion. But Jesus alone walks calmly and confidently through the story to the cross. He deliberately and intentionally journeys to his death because that is the culmination, that is the end, that is the apex of his mission. The Bible makes very clear that Christ's passion, his suffering and death were not an accident. The whole objective of his life, the whole goal of his mission was to become the sacrificial victim who could offer his life as a substitute and as a sacrifice for others. The Son of God has come into the world to bring fulfillment to God's purposes. Christ's death becomes the culmination of God's plan to redeem the world, to buy it back, to restore it to the relationship that he originally intended. His death is the climax. His death is the pinnacle of his mission. Yes, Jesus was a victim, but he was not a victim of fate. Instead, he willingly became a victim to put himself in our place so that we would not be victimized at the end. During this, la- during this Lenten season, we have been reflecting upon the words spoken by Jesus as he hung on the cross. Tonight's words were the last words he spoke before death, spoken in his most desperate hour. Accordingly, each of these statements is pregnant with meaning. And today we consider exactly what he meant with the words, It is finished. Actually, in the original language of John's Gospel, It's only one word, tetelestai. It means that Christ began in his ministry, is now brought to completion. It is completed. The task is done. It is finished. That Christ's death was to be the culminating event of God's plan for saving humanity is evident from the beginning of time. Once you know the story, you can look back and you can see the thread, beginning already in the book of Genesis. The Apostle Peter states that the bloody sacrifice of Jesus as a lamb was ordained before the creation of the world. He writes, You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You were redeemed, that is, you were brought back, with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed to us now in these days. When you read the account of the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in Genesis, in the early chapters of Genesis, you see that in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God. And God announced a punishment upon them, but in the midst of that punishment, he already revealed that he had a plan to restore them, to buy them back, to redeem them. But in order to do so, in order to crush the head of the serpent, God's own son would be bruised and pierced. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God provided signs that that pointed to the need for atonement, for paying back the price. You read the the bloody sacrificial system of the tabernacle and of the temple. It foreshadows, it, it tells in advance of a Messiah who had come to be sacrificed. In Isaiah chapter 53 and 54 and 55, the chapters we'll be reading next week in Holy Week, talk about the servant of God who comes to redeem the world. But this servant is a suffering servant who must die in order to save the people. The prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament envisions the rejection and torture that would come to this suffering servant Messiah. All of it part of God's plan to accomplish the redemption of the world. So when the time came for the promised one to arrive, the destiny of the earth, it was all pre-planned. From the time that Uh, the angels came to Mary and Joseph and said that they would bear a son who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And when they announced it to the shepherds and to the wise men, and the whole story began to unfold, it was all part of a a prearranged plan that God had established. There's a a marvelous passage in Hebrews chapter 10, especially in verses 5 and 7, and it, it envisions a conversation that Jesus The Son had with his Father. We read in Hebrews chapter 10 Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said to his Father, Father, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but you prepared a body for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. So I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll I have come to do your will. Oh, Father, what a prayer. The burnt offerings of the Old Testament could never pay the price for sin. So God entered the world in the form of a human body and presented himself to do the Father's will. He presented himself as the one who could live the holy life that God had demanded. And then he was the one who offered his life as a sacrificial death to satisfy the demands that God had for justice. All part of a plan. All something that Jesus knew was coming. All something that he willingly took upon himself for you and for me. So it was appropriate that at the beginning of his public ministry, the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptizer, points to Jesus and said, Behold! The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A lamb was the sacrificial animal used in the Old Testament. And John recognized that Jesus had come to give his life as a ransom for many. Several times during his final year of ministry, Jesus announced to his disciples what was going to happen. He said that we must go to Jerusalem. And I must suffer many things at the hands of the the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, but that he would rise again on the third day. Jesus recognized what his mission was all about, to give his life as a ransom for many. He even knew that beforehand the means of his death. He told the crowds, When I am lifted up on the earth, I will draw you to myself. So when Holy Week arrives, Jesus willingly offers himself to his enemies for execution. Unlike the tragedy that's spelled out in Jesus Christ Superstar, he is not caught up in forces beyond his control. Instead, he is in control and he is making sure that the demands of God are fulfilled. Everything falls into place exactly as he had planned, exactly as the prophets had foretold in the Old Testament. So on the Thursday night, he willingly submits to his father's will. He prays one last time that if God can come up with another plan, Jesus would like to step aside. But when he couldn't, Jesus went ahead. And so when his enemies arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus doesn't flee, but he presents himself for arrest. When his disciples try to defend him, he tells them to stand down. Jesus said, If I needed defense, I could call down 12 legions of angels to defend me, but that's not the plan. At his first trial before the high priest, Jesus claims that he is the sovereign judge, that Caiaphas can't judge him because Jesus is the one who is the judge. And in his second trial before Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate says, don't you fear my power. And Jesus says, the only power you have is that which I give you. The priests weren't in control. The crowds weren't in control. Pilate was not in control. But it was Jesus who was in control, willingly and lovingly carrying out the Father's will. So we come to a place and a time in which we see Jesus hanging from the cross and we hear him saying those words. And one of the final words he speaks is, to Tetelestai, it is finished. Well, a logical question might be, what is finished? His life? Well, yes, but more importantly, his mission. What has been accomplished by his suffering and death? And the answer is, what has been accomplished is the full atonement for all sin. The full price for all sin paid. We struggle trying to find ways to to make the idea of, of atonement, of paying the penalty for sin meaningful. I've just gone through a home purchase, and I'm made more again familiar with debt and with mortgages and with payment. So think of it this way. Think of all your sins as all the debts you've you've acquired over the years. All the credit card charges, all the home mortgages, all the loans, everything, each and every one of those that each and every person had. And you never, ever, and no one ever, ever made the first payment. All that debt, all those loans, all those coupons, unfulfilled. And then comes Jesus, and with his death, pays off every single note, every single mortgage, every single credit card bill. It's not a perfect analogy, but it begins to give us an idea of what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. The work of salvation is done once for all. If Christ's mission is accomplished, it has consequences for you and for me. And the implication is, that the promise is, that the work of our salvation is done once for all. The message of Jesus is these words, it is finished. For you, that is the work of your salvation. It's done, completed, stamped, paid in full. It is completed once for all. The writer of the book of Hebrews makes this very clear. Again, in chapter 10, he says, We have been made. That's past, perfect, completed. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. That passage continues by affirming that Christ offered the sacrifice once for all time. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect those who are being made holy, the sons and daughters of God. You begin to hear that. Has been made, has been done, has been completed. It is is finished. That's the promise. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been made holy. So the result of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is that you've been forgiven of your sins. You are now declared righteous and perfect in God's sight for the sake of Jesus. His blood cleanses you from your sins. You don't have to earn God's forgiveness. You don't have to earn his favor. It has been done. The Christian writer Malcolm Smith helps us to see the implications of Jesus' finished work. Smith says that there's really only two kinds of religion in the world. First of all, there is a doing religion. The doing religions are those are so named because it involves people doing something to try to earn eternal life. It might be, I'm going to earn God's favor, I'm going to earn my own salvation by perfectly keeping the Ten Commandments or perfectly fulfilling the five pillars of Islam or perfectly following the eightfold path of Buddhism. The idea is always the same. One does good deeds, one keeps the rule in order to try to earn our way into paradise. Such a thing is a doing religion. But the operative word is try. You try to keep the rules, you try to do the right thing, you try to practice the rituals, you try to earn salvation. But the problem is you never know if you've done enough. You never know if you've done the right thing, and you never know if what you did that you thought was right was actually wrong. So the doing religions never achieve their goal. Smith goes on to say that there are doing religions, and then there is the done religion. The religion of true Christianity. It affirms that everything necessary for one's salvation has already been done, everything has been completed. That's what Jesus meant when he said, It is finished, to tell us, die. He has earned your righteousness. He has earned your place before God when God declares you to be innocent, to be holy, to be one of His. He has done it all. In such a done religion, there's no place for you and for me to try to earn our salvation. All that's left for us is to trust what God has done for us. A story is told of a Christian who spent many years trying to convince his friend that Jesus had done everything for his salvation. He emphasized that because of the cross, the work of redemption was finished. But this man's friend would always disagree and say, I know, I know, I know, but I, I must do my part. I must, I must, I should, I have to. And he would go on and on and on. Well, one day that friend, who was an artist, delivered a landscape painting to his Christian friend, a landscape that his friend had commissioned. And so the artist proudly takes this landscape and gives it to his friend and says, Here, here is my finished work. Isn't it beautiful? And the Christian said, Yeah, it's really nice. But, you know, I think I'm going to get a brush. I'm going to paint a little more clouds up here. And I think this painting could use a few more trees over here. And how about a lake on this side? And the artist was horrified. He said, That's an insult. You have no right to do anything to my canvas. It is finished. Christian smiled, looked at him and said, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I've been trying to convince you of. Christ's work of salvation is finished. For you or for me to add anything more to the completed work is a waste of time. You see, the friend said, it is finished. There's nothing for us to do, nothing for us to earn. It is ours to believe and to trust. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.